are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. Hello and welcome to Where Your Treasure Is. I'm Bex Elder and I'm here with Simon Glazier and we are continuing our series looking at money according to the Bible. So Simon, where have we been? Where are we going to next? Where have we been? We've been in the Bible. It's a good start. But you you knew that bit already, didn't you? (laughs) We have done money according to the law and we've done money according to history which means we've covered the first good chunk of the Bible. And we're about today to do money according to the poets, and specifically the poets in the Bible, not just any old poets. So if we think about who that is, we're going to be looking at Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Although to be honest, there's not much about money and wealth and possession in that particular book. Before we get into it, is there anything specific that we need to know about the language used in the poetry books in the Bible? Well, it's interesting you asked that question having already done two episodes on the Bible, because one could argue you need to understand the language that's being used in each and every book of the Bible to work out quite the context it's in. So, yeah, we're in the book of the poets. It's no longer history. So maybe it isn't just a reflection of what has happened. It's not the law, it's not instruction, and it's not yet the prophetic, which sometimes get a bit allegorical, perhaps, a bit more visual and interpretive. But here we have a series of books which perhaps are written in such a way that they can be read like a poem. But let's caveat that they weren't written in English, so it might not rhyme. And I'm sure some of them are acrostics as well where they spell something out or they relate to seasons of the year or special holidays. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. But as we read it, we'll read it in the context of this was written in a particular literary style. And you, as somebody who loves her language, Bex, might want to jump in at some point and say, oh, this is interesting because, and when that happens, I'll be very intrigued to hear what you say. Hopefully I will have those interesting things to say. But as a general resource, one thing that I've found really helpful in terms of interpreting the different literary styles is the Bible Project, who have some great overviews of the different types of literature and what to look out for in each of those. So maybe have a wee look at those as well if you're interested in finding out more. So Simon, kick us off. Where are we going to start with money according to the poets? We're going to start with one of my favourite biblical money-related verses, which comes from the book of Psalms. I knew it. It's from Psalm 24, verse number one, and it says this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And I think that sets a fantastic context for any Christian discussion or thought about money, wealth and possessions, Rule 101, it's God's. Just start there and you're making a cracking good start to your attitude towards money. And I think that's such an easy thing to say, isn't it? Everything belongs to God. It's not mine. I'm just borrowing it. But what does that actually look like in practice? Because I don't know about you, but I often find, despite maybe knowing that in my head and wanting to act that way, sometimes it's really easy to have a tight grip on our own resources. I think it is the human malady that we think what we have is ours, that we deserve it, that we have earned it. 
if it's been given to us, it's ours. Um, if we find it, it's ours. If we've earned it, it's ours. And if it's ours, we have the right to do with it what we want. And yet what has become fairly clear to me through many years of, I suppose, being aware of my profession, financial planning, and my faith as a Christian, and putting those two together, a lot of what the Bible says about our attitude to money is that it's really easy for us to get it wrong. We don't own it. We don't have the right to it. It's not ours. But we have to realize that we will often think that way. And only by stepping back and thinking, no, this is God's. What is my relationship with this property, this wealth, this skill, this time, this ability, all the resources that we have? Only with that perspective can we begin to gain the right attitude. And my opinion over time has become that the right attitude to hold is one of stewardship. We hold it on behalf of somebody else. That somebody else is God. And one day he's going to hold us to account for what we did with his stuff. Does that make sense? That's really helpful. And I think as you say that constant, almost reminding yourself of the perspective and taking a step back is just a really healthy check and habit to get into rather than being all consumed by what's in front of us. So moving on from Psalm 24, I was struck by Proverbs 3, 27 to 28, which says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. And the reason this stuck out to me was because it took me straight back to some of the conversations we had in season one about debt and what does that look like. And it struck me that in this passage, there is a sense of not being in debt, of trying to pay that off as soon as we're able to, which I just thought was quite interesting that we possibly think of debt as quite a modern concept and maybe not something the Bible has lots to say about. And yet it seems that that principle is woven into the very fabric of the Bible. Well, I think we'll see it when we get around to some of the stuff that Jesus says. One of his parables jumps to mind. Debt was a known phenomenon in Bible times, going back a long way. And debt often led to quite bad outcomes. If you couldn't repay your debts, then it was possible that you'd be taken as a slave or put in prison until your debts could be repaid. In fact, there's a, a proverb, Proverb 22, it says here in verse 7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. So when you borrow money, you are in some kind of subservient relationship to the person you've borrowed from. And that could be anything. It could be borrowing money to buy a house or a car or on a credit card. Some of your money needs to be paid back to the person you have borrowed from. And it doesn't always suggest that borrowing is inherently evil, that you shouldn't do it. But we have to be very careful about our borrowing and what we do when we are in debt. And in Psalm 37, we almost see the direct response to what we shouldn't do when we're in debt, which is in verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. And again, that takes me back to a conversation we had about debt and that actually sometimes when our money is tied up in other things, whether that is, as we've talked about, good debt or bad debt, we actually have less ability to give generously because so much of our money is already accounted for. 
And so while in our society, realistically, a level of debt is unavoidable, it does challenge us to think about how much of my money is committed to repayments. And outside of that, how can I give generously? Or how can I free up that money so that I can give more generously in future? If we take the whole biblical approach to giving, and certainly what we get in the New Testament, giving is really important to God, not because he needs our money. I think it's because he wants our hearts. And he knows that to get our hearts, he needs to have our money as well. Otherwise, our money leads us astray. And if we aren't putting our giving first, when it comes to our financial planning and our budgeting, then we can end up in this situation where we've accounted for, well, I can afford that much for a mortgage. I can afford that much for rent. Because when you rent a property, you're committing to pay to live in that property. I can afford that much on my car loan. I can afford that much on the holiday and on Christmas and on birthdays on a credit card, which I'll pay back over the next months or years. Now what's left? Oh, there's nothing left. Oh, I can't afford to give because all my money has already been allocated. Whereas if we start with our giving and say, I will give to the Lord first, now what is left that can sustain my expenditure and my lifestyle choices? We don't get caught in that same kind of trap. It's difficult, but the Bible seems to repeat it again and again and again in different ways, in different places, as though God is saying, look guys, I do mean it. It's really important. Get this right and you'll get a whole lot of other stuff right as well. And we first saw that principle come up in episode one of this season, the concept of first fruits. And so it's interesting to see how that's continued on throughout the Bible in different ways. And I'm sure we will revisit that. What I want to move on to, though, is Ecclesiastes. Ooh, Ecclesiastes. Because, to be honest, it's not my favorite book of the Bible. I feel a little bit sad when I'm reading it. And I'm not entirely sure what I'm meant to be taking from it other than life is meaningless. So, Simon, do you have any wisdom? What is Ecclesiastes saying to us about money? Ecclesiastes isn't, like you say, the jolliest book, and yet it has a really interesting message. There's probably quite a lot of it I could read out to you. Let me go with a really short bit to begin with. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Now, it's a rhetorical question, and in the wider context, the point is, you don't gain very much. Now, let's think, you asked the question early on, Bex, about the language that the poets are writing in. Well, what's the context of Ecclesiastes? We suspect it may have been written by King Solomon, and it really demonstrates a journey that he goes on trying to understand his relationship between wealth, of which the writer, if it's Solomon, we know why, he had plenty of, but not just wealth, pleasure and work and knowledge and experience and the relationship between those things and God. Uh, let me read a bit more out to you. I think this is brilliant the way he puts it. It's a bit long. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs. To be honest, he's showing off a bit. 
and he buys slaves, and he has lots of herds and flocks more than anybody else. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. He had singers, and he had a harem, and in all this, he says, my wisdom stayed with me. Okay, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And he comes to the end. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So at this point in his journey, he has tried. He has tried hedonism. I'm going to get as much stuff and do as much stuff. I'm going to fill the gap in my life with everything I possibly can. And I've realized the gap is not filled. So Bex, where do you think he goes next? Well, I think he's going to try some other things. He's going to see what else could satisfy his desires. Am I right? He just keeps trying everything, to be honest. And he does a lot of stuff. He works hard. And yet he says at the end, even working hard isn't really useful. I'm going to eat and drink because God provides wonderful food. And he provides drink to refresh the soul. But, you know, that's still no good. Hey, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But in the end, you know what? Even those things really are meaningless. He gets to this point where he says, you know what? Everything is a bit pointless. But the fact is that our relationship with God is what matters most. It says this towards the end. This is Ecclesiastes 5. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. It isn't just that God has provided people with, yes, wealth and property, but also toil, the ability to work and the ability to enjoy them. And I think that's one of the key messages from Ecclesiastes. It isn't what we have. It isn't even what we do. It's how we relate those things to God as gifts from him and things that we can take great pleasure in because he has provided to us however much we have or don't have, however able we are or aren't, our very lives are gifts from God and they bring purpose and pleasure and they bring meaning. Mm. And it strikes me that in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7, the author really hits on quite a key question that we often find ourselves asking or society asking. It says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. And what that reminded me of was the desire for more, for more money, for more stuff, for more influence, for more love, for more whatever fill in the blank. And I just think it's quite profound and almost stops you in your tracks that Solomon is saying, I've had all of this stuff, I've had riches beyond your wildest dreams, and yet that doesn't satisfy. And it reminds me of when we were thinking about future planning in terms of our finances, and that actually we have to ask ourselves the question, what is enough? And that that can be a difficult question to answer. But I suppose by recognizing that perhaps our appetite will never be satisfied, that there will be a bit of us that's always wanting more, that can maybe help us actually start to have a rational conversation with ourselves and others about what do we actually need versus that desire for more. 
And the Bible isn't the only place we eventually stumble across that kind of wisdom or knowledge that just having more doesn't really make a difference. I've heard many famous and wealthy people be quoted or possibly misquoted. One of my favorites is actually from Jim Carrey. And I think he did say this, Jim Carrey, the actor. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We could maybe summarize Ecclesiastes into the words of Jim Carrey instead and make the Bible a bit shorter. But no, let's not do that. There's a lot more in it as well. Where should we go next, Bex? We've got a bit more time. We've still got some more of these poets to dig into. What else has sprung to your attention on the topic of wealth and money and possessions? So what comes to mind is that so often in Proverbs, it's using language about laziness, about being a sluggard, about the work ethic, which I suppose is ultimately linked in our society to making money and what that looks like. Do you have any verses that could shed some light on that in more detail rather than my vague recollection of things I've read in Proverbs? There's a lovely one in uh, Proverbs 6, which if you don't read it in its full context, you might take out of context. It goes like this. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, which is the bit that I quite like the idea of. That sounds quite nice. Until it finishes like this. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. And the point here isn't that poverty is bad. We know that Jesus cared a lot about the poor and so should we. Poverty isn't a sign of God's lack of blessing and riches isn't a sign of his blessing. But if you have the means to work and the ability and you choose not to, then that kind of self-imposed poverty is not great. It says again in Proverbs 10, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And as you mentioned before, Bex, that gives us freedom to be generous with what we have. It isn't wealth for our own sake. It is wealth to serve God in however he chooses to ask us to do that. And I suppose that ties into our conversation earlier about everything belonging to God and that actually, while it's good to work hard, we don't want that to become an idol either. And so we're weighing up this sense of the Bible saying it's good to work hard, that that's actually something that's God-given right back in Genesis and yet weighing that up with what we just read in Ecclesiastes about actually the appetite never being satisfied, that desire for more and with Sabbath and the importance of work. And I think that's all a really interesting tension when we live in really quite a divided society when it comes to work. Some sections of society may take the view of how can I get as much for as little as possible? Meanwhile, you also have the side of society that could almost be described as workaholic, where work is their life And where really it's all consuming to the point that things like burnout in workplace are increasingly common. And so it strikes me as a whole load of things to keep in tension and that ultimately money, work and lots of other things can steal our attention from God. And so there's that challenge to continually keep God on the throne and to keep our eyes fixed on him. There is a bit of a psalm that succinctly explains that very set of principles you're talking about there, Bex. It's from Psalm 127, and it starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So we can work as hard as we like. If we're not working for God and for his purposes, 
It's meaningless. Ecclesiastes is right. But it goes on. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand guard in vain. We can't protect our own lives. We need God's protection from all that's going on around us. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. And again, Ecclesiastes tells us food is meaningless in the end. Yeah, we need enough, but not too much. And it finishes this little bit like this. For he grants sleep to those he loves. So on one hand, too much sleep is a bad thing. And on the other hand, the Lord grants sleep and rest to those who are working according to his purposes. And sleep and rest are important factors that God has built into the rhythm and routine of our lives. So before we wrap up, I would love to have a little bit of conversation about Proverbs 31. I feel like from as long as I can remember as a woman, this has been quoted as this is the gold standard. This is what we would all love to be as women, as wives. Within that proverb, it also talks a lot about provision, about looking after her family in both financial and practical means. And so, Simon, what are some of the principles we can draw out from that proverb, which I'm sure are going to be applicable to both men and women? Well, Proverbs 31, the sayings of King Lemuel. I'm not sure King Lemuel says anything else in the Bible apart from pretty much this bit here, is excellent. Now, I think you should start off by giving us the core section. What's it called in my Bible? The wife of noble character. If you read that out to us, Bex, I'm going to throw in a few thoughts. But as you read, listeners, just imagine this particular woman, wife in this context, and whether you're male or female, married or not, can you set yourself against this measure of King Lemuel's wife of noble character? Good luck, everyone. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night and she provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed her husband also, and he praises her. What a woman. What an anybody. Let me give you the highlights, okay? Can you do this? Can you get up while it's still night, but also work through the night because her lamp does not go out? She works vigorously. She opens her arms to the poor. She clothes all of her household and makes coverings for her bed and sells garments as well. She's full of wisdom and she laughs 
and her children arise and call her blessed. What a woman. Now, I was going to point out, if you read the very first introduction to Proverbs 31, it says this, the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. They weren't even his own words. It was his mum who told him to do all this. So I think his mother was the woman of incredibly noble character. But what a benchmark that we are set there. And absolutely, I can imagine a king saying, this is the kind of woman I want, thank you very much. But hang on, if he was a king, he didn't really need all those things. So was he talking to his nobles, the people in his court, the people he was king over? And yet such a woman is worth far more than rubies and very hard to find. So I don't think this is necessarily a standard that we are required to meet. I think it's an element of perfection almost, where yes, it's good to work hard, but it's really good to recognize those who are working hard, who are providing for those they care for, who are in loving relationships. It's not about the doing. I think it's more about the why. Why you're doing it and what are you doing it for? But of course, that is just my opinion. And one of my favorite parts in that passage is when it says she can laugh at the days to come. Because to me, it speaks of a security. And I imagine that's not just in the financial security she's built up by doing all these many jobs and providing for her family, but actually it's a security in knowing who God is, that he is her protector and ultimately her provider. And there's a sense of almost freedom in that and a security that comes with that, which I think is something that we'd all love to have in our lives, regardless of our financial situations. So we have managed to pull an awful lot out of the books of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but there hasn't been really any mention yet of Job or a song of songs. So very briefly, I've managed to find these two. Tell me your thoughts on these, Beck, starting from Job. Job 31, and we know his situation. He's being afflicted and he spends a lot of time kind of grumbling to God without ever blaming God. And then he says this in Job 31, 13. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What do you think that means in terms of this idea of wealth and possession and money? I don't know exactly what it means, but what strikes me about that passage is the sense of responsibility to, in Job's case, his servants, but perhaps in our case, people who we have some level of responsibility over, whether that's employees or volunteers or people we mentor, and a sense that we are called to do what is right by God to those people And I'm not an employer, perhaps, Simon, you can speak into this. But perhaps for us, that means not just doing always the bare minimum that's required of us, but actually ensuring that people are treated with dignity, with respect, because ultimately we know that we're going to be answering to God about how we have looked after those people. I think that's exactly right. It's not living in a way that says, what can I get away with? And how little can I get away with? But can I try and be an example or a model of honesty and of caring for those I have opportunity to care for. And in an employer-employee relationship or in a volunteer relationship, the reverse is also true. It says this in Proverbs 25. Like a snow-cooled drink at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger 
to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. Here's an employee who is doing their job so well that they are refreshing the spirit of their employer. They can be a blessing in return. So both employees and employers have responsibility. I think to wrap us up, should we go for one last one in songs? Yep, I'm going to throw it at you so you have to give us some wisdom on it because I'm scratching my head. Song 8 verse 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Simon, what's going on here? We're back in Ecclesiastes, Bex. (laughs) Wealth is meaningless, scornful. This could be Shakespeare. Love. Love is the only thing that really matters. People would give up everything for love. It's been said many times, it'll be said again. What we know is that God is love. And when we have that right relationship with him, we put him first, everything else pales into insignificance. But our relationship with all these other things becomes much more balanced and in perspective. And it helps us do the right thing when it comes to our wealth and our time and our possessions everything we have that God in his love for us has given us. Wonderful. And so that takes us to the end of our episode on money according to the poets. And we would love to hear your thoughts. Perhaps you think we've wildly misinterpreted something or there's something that you would love to draw out that we've missed. If that's you, you can drop us an email at where your treasure is at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or you can drop us a message on Instagram as well. Thank you for listening, and we'll be joining you next episode for Money According to the Prophets. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go.